Hi, everybody. Nice to see you, some of you again. Hope you're enjoying this first day. This is just such a great meeting. I just love it. I want to listen to all the talks, even while I'm in here. So, so much to learn. So we're going to talk about burnout today. And I'm glad you're here. And um, hopefully, if you're here, you probably have an interest in this, which I'm not surprised. I have to say that I actually started reading the research on this a couple years ago because I was feeling an interest in it, and I felt like I needed a little bit of resilience, enhancement, and refreshment. And so I want to share with you all that I have learned. Here are my disclosures. And uh, as, as you just heard, I'm a clinical psychologist at Montefiore Headache Center in the Bronx. And I'm also a researcher. And I like to say I spend about 75% of time as a psychologist and about 75 or 80% of my time as a researcher. Um, I just take it out of sleep and, and enjoyment, so relaxation. I'm thinking you probably do the same, right? Yeah? So here's our learning objectives. I'm going to share with you some of the data on burnout among healthcare professionals, especially among people who care for people with chronic pain conditions, so that's us. I'm going to tell you some of the risk factors for burnout, and also on the good news side, some of the protective factors, things we can do to enhance our resilience and improve our quality of life as providers and um, describe how to really really do that, enhance our resilience and engage in the protective factors so that we can all help our patients while still remaining healthy and happy ourselves. So stress is really an inherent part of our lives and our profession as healthcare professionals. We kind of signed up for a somewhat stressful job. Um, there are a few more stressful jobs than ours, but ours is pretty tough. You know, people's lives, sometimes, and very, very literally, and then a lot of times quite figuratively, their quality of life is really in our hands to a great degree. So what is stress? So the scientific definition of stress uh, was first studied in the 1930s by Walter Cannon. He came up with the fight or flight understanding, which is really how we understand our body's sympathetic response to danger. And it really is an elegant survival mechanism. It helps us if we have a physical threat. Um, I live and work in the Bronx, and it's good to be alert, right? So if you're walking down a dark alley um, and you hear footsteps behind you, I think it's really good actually to have this rush of adrenaline and cortisol and glucose and have the, the blood go to my muscles so I can run away or fight or do whatever I need to do. But on the, on the better side, much of our stress today is, is physiologic. It's usually, or psychologic. It's usually not a physical danger, thank goodness. And so now we end up with a lot of adrenaline and glucose all rushed around our system, creating distress. So we started with this concept. And then in the 1950s, Hans Selye introduced the general adaptation syndrome. I'm going to show you a picture of that in just a moment. A picture's easily worth a thousand words, in my opinion. And, and then um, in the 1980s, Richard Lazarus and Susan Folkman talked about the transactional model. And basically, the idea here was that the psychobiologic stress response arises from an imbalance in the perceived demands and the perceived personal and social resources. So how much is demanded of us from our work, our patients, our administrators, our, our employers, our spouses, our kids, all of that sort of stuff? laundry, taxes, dishes, and how much do we have on the side of resources? Time, great support staff, understanding and appreciative administrators, um, lovely spouses, yes, 
um, family members, personal time for hobbies, support groups. So how is that balance looking? And that's something we all need to be mindful of as healthcare professionals. What is our personal balance? Um, because we are caring for others, but we really can't do a good job of that if we are completely drained and exhausted ourselves. So as I mentioned a minute ago, stress is not inherently negative, and our stress response is a beautiful, elegant survival response for times of physical danger. And I like this little image. A diamond is just a piece of charcoal that handled stress exceptionally well. So good things can come out of stress for us. And so it's a survival response, it's functional, and it enhances performance as well. So there's this Yerkes-Dodson curve, which you may have learned back in graduate school or medical school, that we actually don't want to be completely underactivated. We don't want to be relaxed and zenned out all the time. Um, it's called the, the rust outside on the, on the left side there of the curve. And we don't want to be burnt out. We don't want to be completely, extremely overactivated, as you see on the right side. We really function best in the middle. We have a peak performance range. And whether we're talking about Olympic athletes who are going out to compete or a performer who's going out here in Las Vegas to do uh, a show or us as a healthcare professional going to see a patient, we want to be thinking, we want to be alert, we want to have some good energy. So we really don't want to be completely low stress in our day-to-day -day life. We want to be activated. But we do want to stay in this healthy middle ground, and a lot of us are getting on the burnt out side. And I think that's a really cool way to think about the intersection between challenge or activation and confidence or skill. So basically, we do want to have, especially if you're in this room, you're a high achiever, right? You did well academically, you pushed yourself hard, you went to many more years of school and training than anyone thought was, was not crazy to do. Um, you amassed way more student debt and loan than anyone thought you should do. You extended all this, you work hard, you work long hours, you're a high achiever. If you're a healthcare professional, especially working in chronic pain, you're already a high achiever. I know you are. Um, so you're going to like some activation, some challenge, some thinking. It's not that we want to be zenned out all the time, because low activation is kind of an apathetic state. But we want our confidence level, our resources, our, our skill set to be high. That's where we get into this sweet spot of engagement, or flow, as it's called. And flow is this great psychologic concept of a kind of moving meditation. It's when you're really doing what you do best. It's Michael Jordan playing basketball. It's just a natural. And it's you with a patient when you're having a great day, a great session, it's going along, you help someone. This is an exciting place to be. Now, we want to have some relaxation time. We need this, whether it's a big vacation or whether it's a daily 10-minute walk with your dog. We want to have a little bit of this downtime in our daily lives and our annual lives. But during our workday, we actually want to be engaged, but we want to have the resources we need, the time to see the patients, the support staff helping us out, all those kinds of things. So as I mentioned, too much stress for a long time is a problem. And this is the Hanselier model of burnout. And what happens is humans start with this alarm. Something's wrong. Something's going on. You get that activated, sympathetic fight-or-flight response. You get ready to engage. But 
for many of us, we work in cerebral environments, not physical environments. So now what we have is a sympathetic activation that we don't really need, kind of burning out in our body. We spend too much time there, and finally we get to this level of exhaustion. And this level of exhaustion for us is associated with a lowered immune system, more colds, more illness, more fatigue, weight gain around the middle, distress at home, less enjoyment of life. And a lot of us are living in this gray area. The reason I'm going to say that is because all the research I'm going to show you next says that more than 50% of us are in this burnt out area. So what is burnout? It was a term coined in 1974 by Freudenberger, and it is, by definition, increased feelings of emotional exhaustion, unfeeling or impersonal response towards patients, and dissatisfaction with work accomplishments. And a lot of the studies I'm going to mention use the Maslach Burnout Inventory. It measures three constructs, an emotional exhaustion, so feeling of being emotionally overextended and exhausted by one's work. You just can't see one more patient. Um, cynicism or depersonalization, that's when you're stopping to care. And that's, that's a red flag for us because we went into helping professions because we care about helping people. But when you get pushed too far, it's not your fault. Eventually, you just kind of give up. So that's an unfeeling and impersonal response towards recipients of one's service or care or treatment or instruction. And then also the third area is professional efficacy and accomplishment, feelings of competence and pride in our work, feeling that we're making a difference in the world, we're helping people, we're proud of what we're doing. So these are the three areas measured by this instrument. This is too small to read, but generally we've got three sections here. We've got the burnout section with questions like, I feel emotionally drained by my work. We've got the depersonalization section here with uh, questions like, I find I look after certain patients interpersonally as if they are objects, or I'm afraid this job is making me uncaring. And then we've got the third section, which is the emotional professional um, accomplishment section. So some of these questions have negative valence, some have positive valence. I put them in red and green here so you can read them a little bit better. Some of the negative valence, I feel emotionally drained from my work. I feel used up at the end of the day. I feel tired when I get up in the morning and have to face another day at work. And some of the positive valence, um, I deal effectively with the problems of clients. I am positively influenced other people's lives through my work. And there are 22 questions. And um, in addition to this long form, there's also a short form of about seven questions that's available online. And um, if you're thinking about it, I encourage you to go take this questionnaire and see where you rate. Although I have a feeling you, if you are already thinking you might feel burned out, you probably are. And um, like I said, um, that's becoming very, very common. It's common in helping professions, and it's very common among pain professionals which I'm going to show you those data in just a minute. So burnout has consequences for us as healthcare professionals. It has consequences for our patients as well. And so uh, research shows that burnout among healthcare professionals is associated with early retirement, job changes, more medical malpractice suits, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, increased absenteeism, um, increased alcohol substance use, um, problems with relationship, including divorce. These are all well established by research. 
And when I think about, just to go into one of these for a moment, let's just think about depression for a moment. Um, which, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Does, does burnout increase depression? Does depression lead to burnout? Well, it turns out it's a bi-directional relationship. And if we think about the conservation of resources theory, um, where we say deficiency in one area leads to the exhaustion of resources in another area, if someone is starting out depressed, they're going to have low energy and feeling hopeless, feeling helpless, feeling overwhelmed, and that might lead to accelerated job burnout. But if someone is feeling overburdened at work, and they're starting to feel that nothing they do matters, it doesn't make a difference, they can't keep up, they can't take care of everything that has to be taken care of in the amount of time they have, and the demands are increasing, but their time isn't, um, that could accelerate the symptoms of depression. So it's a bi-directional relationship. Burnout also has consequences for patients, and it's associated with lack of professionalism, increased risk of medical errors, ordering necessary tests and procedures, and decreased quality of care, among other things. So there's a lot of negatives to burnout, um, both to us and to our patients. Burnout is common for all types of healthcare professionals. And as I was preparing this talk and I started to do a literature search among probably many of the different professionals who are sitting in this room, I found a whole body of literature for, for physicians, for nurses, for physical therapists, for occupational therapists, for psychiatrists, for physiatrists, for neurologists, for academic researchers. And everyone might have had slightly different concerns but the themes were the same. So I'm going to share those themes with you. The themes were high demand. So your, whether it is your institution or your patients or your administrator or in your personal life, your spouse, your teenager, demanding more of you. But then this lower sense of control and self-efficacy, you can't meet that demand because either you don't have enough time or you don't have enough support staff or you don't have enough energy. You just can't meet the demand. Also, a lack of social support and an imbalance between work and other aspects of life. So for every type of healthcare professional that I looked for research, these four factors really seem to be at the heart of burnout, a combination of too much demand and not enough resources. Um, it also seems that burnout rates, one, are increasing. Um, and this shows just rates of increase between 2013 and 2016, and that they are higher for females. And that may be due to the fact that women may have additional role responsibilities. So women may have more of the household responsibilities. They may have more parenting and house cleaning and all of that sort of responsibilities. Although that is also evening out to some degree. I know I have a, a one-year-old baby at home, and he's kind of an equal opportunity sleep depriver. So um, I think that men are, 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 are joining us in the, the home burden more and more each year. So a study, um, first I'm going to talk about some of the research with physicians. So a study by the Mayo Clinic and the American Medical, and then I'm going to go on to nurses. But the Mayo Clinic American Medical Association found that nearly one in two U.S. physicians report at least one system of burnout. And this is hard to read, but here are burnout rates by specialties with emergency medicine nearly 70%. I'm going to show you PM&R, physical medicine rehabilitation, is right here at about 50%, maybe a little bit over. Um, looks like dermatologists are pretty happy. Do we have any dermatologists here? No, okay. I want to come back as a dermatologist. Um, and then 
when we look at satisfaction with work-life balance, here's those dermatologists. They're at the beach wearing their sunscreen. Um, and and uh, here are our, our PM&R folks are just below the mean with a uh, about 40%, 45% saying they're satisfied with their work-life balance. So um, more than half are, are feeling burnt out, less than half are satisfied with their work-life balance. And as I mentioned, rates of burnout are increasing. So just looking at uh, rates between 2011 and 2014 among physicians, we saw that rates increased in all sorts of specialties. Let me show you the numbers for our PM&R folks again. We had 47% of them in 2011 meeting criteria for burnout, up to 63% 63 in 2014. And if we were to pro keep projecting that trajectory, that sounds pretty bad. It means we're over 100% in, in just a couple decades here. So that's not going to be good. So certainly we see that we need to be intervening. So let's talk specifically about burnout among pain medicine physicians. So among 207 pain medicine physicians, 60% had, when we think about those three subscales of the burnout inventory, 60% had high emotional exhaustion, 35% felt depersonalized, and 20% reported low personal accomplishment. Um, younger age was a higher risk factor. Um, coworker support mattered a lot. And um, uh, a couple other factors were highly related, like perceived job demands, uh, and time again. So that's pain medicine physicians. Here's a survey that was sent to members of the American Headache Society, so it's people who focus specifically on headache. Um, there were 127 responses, 80% of them were neurologists, other members included psychologists, uh, dentists, um, and other, prof other professionals, psychiatrists. 57% um, met criteria for burnout. And that was compared with 53% of all neurologists or 28% of US working adults. Rates were highest among younger people, those with fewer years of practice, those who had more paperwork. And some of the specific complaints, and you can probably relate to a lot of these, were work schedules, government regulations, implementation of the Affordable Care Act, insurance company policies, malpractice concerns, patient telephone calls, and compensation. So do any of those, any of those maybe, right? Might, might overlap with your concerns as well. However, on the good side, 91% of those surveyed said, I'm appreciated by my patients. And this is what keeps us going to work every day. Well, this and, and we do have to pay our bills. But this is what one of the reasons we keep going every day. And I think in pain in general, we do find that our patients appreciate us, need us, want us, care about us. Sometimes need us a little too much, but we do feel appreciated, and that's an important, important factor on the positive side. So nurses are certainly affected by stress and burnout too, and this <laughs> says, you don't look so good, you should call the nurse. I am the nurse. Um, nurse staffing affects job satisfaction, burnout, high workload and poor staffing ratios are associated with burnout, low job satisfaction, increased stress. And nursing stresses, just like uh, physician stresses related to adverse patient events, nurse injuries, quality of care, and patient satisfaction. And I'm going to throw in, too, uh, nursing sat satisfaction of our providers, too. 
And in, in the survey that was cited at the bottom um, by Kovner et al., 41% uh, nurses uh, reported job satisfaction, 43% met criteria for burnout, 23% um, intend to leave with one year, and 33% of those under 30 were leaving in one year. So some of the concerns here is that w this our field and our patients may be losing some of their best providers if we don't do something about burnout. Um, us at the level of providers and hopefully our institution administrators um, at the level of administrators. And when we asked, they asked the nurses what were their source of dissatisfaction, too few nurses for quality care, increased placement assignment, inadequate support services, quality care deteriorating, and not confidence that patients could manage a discharge. So those were some of their concerns. So what are the reasons for burnout? Well, we just talked specifically about a list of reasons by physicians and a list of reasons from headache specialists, a list of reasons from nurses. And I thought this was a nice quote by the president of the American Association. He said, physicians want to provide our patients with the best care possible, but today they're confusing, misaligned, and burdensome regulatory programs that take away critical time physicians could be spending to provide high-quality care for their patients. And I think we could insert healthcare professionals instead of physicians. And I think a lot of us in the room would say we feel the same. If you're not shy, do you, do you agree with this statement? Is this statement kind of how you're feeling at work at least some of the time? Yeah, I am too. I am too. Um, so what causes burnout? Um, in another survey, we, the top response was too many bureaucratic tasks, spending too many hours at work, Increased computerization of practice. I know in my office they set up a computer screen directly in between me and the patient, and I was supposed to type notes while the patient talked. So, I mean, this is psychotherapy. I, I so I'm just supposed to not see the patient at all, type while the patient talks, so I can get my notes done, you know, while they're in there and not waste time. I probably should have eaten lunch at the same time as well. Um, and, um, and I called my maintenance guy and I said, Can you unscrew this? And, put over to the side and he did even though he wasn't supposed to. But this is the kind of kind of thing I know we're all working with is trying to work around um, our new regulations of, of, of electronic health records and electronic um, computer maintenance record keeping and trying to do this at the same time that we're trying to establish rapport and connect with our patients. The thing that we really like to do, the thing we're there to do. Um, some other things on the list, income not high enough, feeling just like a cog in a wheel, maintenance of certification requirements, impact of the Affordable Care Act, too many difficult patients, that can happen to us in pain, um, too many appointments in one day. So a whole list that, again, I know resonates with me and probably resonates with many of us. So if we were to take all of these lists, and I looked at research from quite a few different provider areas and grouped them together, there's, there's three different main categories burnout. One is job characteristics. So this is the employee, patient relationships, role conflict, role ambiguity, role overload. This is, this is the things in the job that are making it difficult with the patient. And this may be in pain. This may be patients who are overusing or misusing um, medications or substance abusing or, or with personality disorder or just angry at us. That's the kind of challenge there. 
organizational characteristics. And this, again, is me having my computer screen right in the middle of my desk. This is our shortening, 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 shortening appointment times and our lengthening number of patients, and yet our lengthening amount of things we're supposed to document and do and discuss in that shortening amount of time. Um, also, lack of acknowledgement or appreciation by administration and, and lack of um, support. And then personal characteristics. These are our own characteristics, our own health and well-being, our own healthy or lack of habits, our own nutrition and exercise and sleep, and our own ability to manage stress. So when I pulled together all the many reasons people were saying they really come into these three categories. And if you sit, kind of bring it down to boil it down to one thing, we're back to this perceived teeter-totter of demands versus ability to meet those demands versus resources, versus time, energy, um, and interest and aptitude. And I, I just love that the seagull just says, no, I'm going to sit here anyway. So <laughs> do not let the sign stop you, seagull. Now, symptoms of burnout could be physical, physical exhaustion, chronic fatigue, headache, back pain, GI problems, sleep disturbance, uh, muscle tension, uh, certainly suppressed immune system, getting sick more frequently, more easily, lingering illnesses. Also behavioral, we might notice irritability, anger, resentment, alienation. We might notice that it bleeds over into our home and family life, so marital distress or parenting issues, uh, more rigid thinking, feeling self-rightness, and increased alcohol or drug use or other uh, forms of kind of escape and relaxation that, that aren't as useful for us, as helpful for us. And then cognitive or affective, emotional numbness, hypersensitivity, cynicism, anger, helplessness, hopelessness, depression, over-identification with patients. Um, I have to say, has anyone else in the room ever looked at a patient you just admitted for a couple days and thought, that looks nice? Like, I would like to go lay down in the hospital for three days. Yeah, let's do that. Am I the only one? Has anyone else ever thought that? Okay, okay, a couple people have thought it. Okay, okay. It, kind of, it sounds like a vacation, you know, like a staycation. Um, anyway, you know when you're feeling that it is time for a vacation. So what does this mean for us as healthcare professionals? Well, first off, our patients need us. We cannot abandon them right now. We don't want to. We need to take care of ourselves so that we can keep taking care of them. So one, on the one hand, if we think of our teeter-totter, we can avoid or manage the risk factors. On the other side of the teeter-totter, we need to enhance our protective factors. And so if we go back to this questionnaire, I just want you to look at, just look at two of the different questions in the red. And just think to yourself, would you answer these in the positive? And then I'm going to go to the next, next one. I just want you to look at two of the questions in the green and think to yourself, would you answer these in the positive? So I just want you to keep in your head, now we only did two, two and two questions, out, so only four questions out of 22, but I just want you to think in your head, what are your kind of feelings of frustration and limitations and resistance right now compared with your resources and strengths right now? What is your personal balance? We really need to be stopping and thinking about ourselves at least as much as we think about our patients. We really do, because we cannot care for them, let alone care for our families and care for the other aspects of our life if we are just emotionally drained. 
And you know, you really you can't pour from an empty cup. You have to take care of yourself first. So you are not being selfish by taking care of yourself first. If you take care of yourself, you can take care of your patients and your family and the other people who need you. So what can we do? So these are all scientifically proven um, uh, approaches that I found in the literature. I just put them on a more fun list. Um, one I just talked about is paying attention to yourself, noticing signs of depression, stress, burnout. Um, exercise. And exercise can be a range of things. It can certainly be getting physically active, and it may be aerobic, but for you it may be gardening, it may be walking your dog, it may just be taking a walk after dinner. It can be any range, but getting physically active is very important. Getting enough sleep is very, very important. And thinking about all of those good sleep hygiene tips that we tell our patients. We, we advise our patients to try to go to bed and wake up at the same time every day and to avoid caffeine later in the day, avoid our stimulating devices with the blue light later in the day, and engaging in any relaxation exercise we need to turn off our thoughts. And that may include meditation, or it may include prayer, or listening to relaxing music, anything you need to turn off your thoughts. And certainly, if you find that stress and anxiety is becoming overwhelming, you may want to talk to a, uh, a behavioral or, or psychological healthcare professional. That's what we're here for. Um, vacations. Uh, this says, this antidepressant works best if you take with water, lapping near your hammock on a Caribbean beach. So you really need vacations. You need a break. You need time out of the office, whether it's on your own or with your family, whatever is rejuvenating, relaxing. And actually, research shows that we get almost as much psychological benefit in the time leading up to and anticipating the vacation as engaging in the vacation itself. So very interesting. Um, in addition, we would experience greater happiness from several small vacations throughout the year if we have a limited number of time, which we probably all do, rather than, some, than just one a year. So planning those three or four day weekend getaways can sometimes be really rejuvenating. And if possible, when you are away, try to be away as much as possible. I know that today we all can um, be, uh, you know, be contacted 24-7 between email and our, and, our, and our devices. And so trying to disengage a little bit and enjoy either personal time or family time. Um, engaging in relaxation activities, and if you were here this morning, got to hear my talk about what we do with patients, those may be something like an actual meditation, um, but they may be also something that is a kind of mindful activity, whatever that is for you, whether it's gardening or, or spending time with, with a, a friend or reading a book, or listening to music, whatever it is you like. You need to have some downtime for your nervous system to get out of the sympathetic activation and engage in a parasympathetic relaxation response. There's a lot of research on gratitude. So even when we are feeling overwhelmed and distressed and unhappy, if we can recall three things we're grateful for that day, and if we do this on a daily basis, it significantly improves mood. In fact, um, there's a very simple formula for happiness. And there's a, the United Nations does a very nice happiness survey each year. And the formula for happiness is expectations over reality. It's not 
what we have over reality. It's expectations. And so interestingly, Americans don't come in that happy. Denmark usually wins first place for happiness, and Bangladesh is often in the top two or three, even though in Bangladesh sometimes people don't even have electricity or power. Um, because of a rickshaw accident. My, my husband's programming team works in Bangladesh and a rickshaw accident uh, cut the power lines which ran in the street. And um, so everyone went home for the day. But So thinking about different quality of life, it's not just our quality of life, it's our perception of it. And so when people were asked to spend um, 15 minutes before bed writing a list of things you're thankful for, they found that they worried much less, they were able to fall asleep faster, and they slept better. And um, some of these little facts are from a website I really like called Happify. They do uh, happiness research, and so they have a lot of little great scientific summaries of the happiness research going on. Um, Engaging in social support, whoever your social support is around you is important. It may be your significant other, it may be family and friends, um, and whoever that is is very important. That seemed to come out a lot in the research from the physicians and the nurses um, that social support was a barrier or was a, was a buffer against the amount of stress they, they had. And you may choose who those people are who are uplifting and encouraging. It may not necessarily be the people you're related to, or it might, but choosing the people who really give you support. Um, research shows certainly that spending time with pets is very good for the immune system. It's good for a cardiovascular system. It's naturally relaxing, unless you happen to be allergic or have a phobia. <laughs> but if you're not, um, spending time with pets is actually really great because unlike teenagers or spouses, they actually don't complain. They're just happy. Um, setting boundaries and assertiveness, which may be in the workplace, it may be in the home, and, you know, we are all here to do no harm and take care of our patients, but we are people too, and we actually do have rights too to be treated with respect and to have some boundaries. And I think when we let go of those boundaries, we actually start to feel overwhelmed and resentful. So this may have to do with leaving at a reasonable time, or it may have to do with deciding that you're going to get out and take a walk every day at lunch, even if it's only for five minutes, because you need some sunshine, you need some fresh air, you need to get out of the building. Um, whatever it is, starting to set these boundaries to protect your well-being during the day can make a very big difference in a cumulative fashion. Um, we know that humor and laughter, laughter is really beneficial for the immune system, the cardiovascular system, and a lot of times if you do have co-workers that you can do a quick hallway chat with or meet each other down at the coffee for uh, 30 seconds in between patients, a lot of times you can let off a lot of steam and stress um, by, by saying, oh, that, that last patient was tough, but we did this and this. So using humor and laughter as a stress reliever is important. Um, engaging in hobbies, making time for yourself is important, and that's something we really tend to let go. Research shows that when we are stressed or overwhelmed, either psychologically or physically with, for example, a chronic illness, we let go of our own hobbies first, followed by home and child and family care and job responsibilities last. So we let go of our own care first. But the interesting thing is, certainly without our own care, it's hard to care for our families and our patients. In 
for some people, having a spiritual or religious practice is very comforting and very positive for stress reduction. So if that's something that you like and either maybe used to engage in or kind of lost time for, you may want to bring that as a habit back into your life. And then I know this is really comes from the, uh, the 12-step serenity prayer, but we do need to think about what we have control over and take control of what we have control over and realize what we do not have control over and let that go. And when I was talking about the three different areas that burnout problems stem from, one is, one is administration, and we may have much less control over the systems and the administration that we have to follow. Things like implementing the electronic health records, um, government policies, our institutional policies, insurance company requirements, those things we may not have much control over, although we may, perhaps if we have an, a conversation with our administrators and we come with some kind of reasonable plan, we may be able to get a little bit of, a little bit of support, a little bit of help, a little bit more reasonable time to do what we need to do. And then finally, I would advise you to uh, oh, and um, interestingly, when it comes to worries, I thought this was a very interesting fact that 85% of the stuff we worry about ends up having a positive or neutral outcome. So um, as humans, we have this ability to uh, ruminate and worry about things that, that haven't even happened. Um, and um, we believe that animals don't do this. We believe that animals are, they have stress in the moment, and then after that stress is over, with some time they kind of resolve and come back to a neutral state. But as humans, we can ruminate and keep that stress with us. So letting go of things, especially future worry or things we don't have control over, is really important. And then seeking professional help when necessary. So we are people too. And I actually, in my practice, have developed a, a subspecialty of caring for healthcare professionals. I see quite a few residents, nurses, fellows, and physicians. And I think that that is a really valuable part of my practice because if I can help them kind of manage their stressors and feel more balanced and feel more in control, they're going out and helping literally hundreds or thousands of people. So um, the big factor that can really help us get through stress is the concept of resilience. And resilience is the capacity to respond to stress in a healthy way. So it's not avoiding stress, it's getting through it in a way such that goals are achieved at minimal psychological and physiologic cost. And important components include the individual, community, and institutional factors. Um, and I really like this quote by John Kabat-Zinn where he said, you can't stop the waves from coming, but you can learn how to surf. And I think that really describes life to a great degree. We cannot necessarily control what is happening to us, but we can control how we respond to it. That's what's where we really have our control. And so Martin Seligman is a uh, positive psychology researcher at the University of Pennsylvania. And he has a whole set of resilience-enhancing exercises. He's got some very interesting self-assessments and questionnaires on his website. And he's done a whole, he's been working on, in positive psychology since about the year 2000 when he was elected president of the American Psychological Association. And what I like is that he's studying here instead of illness or disease or, or, or unwellness, is he studying wellness? So what do happy, healthy, balanced people do? And how can we all continue to have more of those, those tasks and those features in our lives?
And so if you're interested in doing some of those assessments, uh, the website is called AuthenticHappiness.edu, and it's actually from the Martin Seligman Lab at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, he's broken down the components of happiness and well-being for humans. It's the PERMA model. And these components include positive emotion, um, which is things like looking on the optimistic side of things, but also setting the boundaries, enjoying time, having time for, to be with people you enjoy, relationships, accomplishments, which is very big to us as healthcare professionals. We are people, obviously, by our choice of profession, who do like to get things done and who have gotten a lot of things done. And that's a big reason why we're in this profession. One, to help people, and two, to make the world a better place and feel like we're accomplishing things. So we need to have that sense that what we're doing matters in our day and in our week and in our year and in our profession. Um, engagement and meaning. So these are the five elements of happiness from the really the science of happiness research. And by trying to think about how to bring all of these into our lives as healthcare professionals, again, we can stave off some of that burnout and be better able and equipped to help other people. So in summary, Stress is common among healthcare professionals. I just reviewed data on physicians and nurses, but I found data for everyone in the room, I promise you. Um, and what I found was that for almost every profession I looked at, it's approaching 60% of people who were feeling burnt out, and almost every profession, was that? Except the dermatologist, so yes, yes. I don't know how long it would take to retrain, but yes, except the dermatologist, thank you. Um, the trend seems to be it's increasing, and that certainly makes sense with our increasing regulations and requirements. But there are both protective factors and there are risk factors. Risk factors we reviewed just need to be mindful and kind of be aware of checking in with how you're doing. And you may want to check in with your colleagues, too. I think this is something you might even want to uh, team up with a colleague and say, you know, throughout the year, let's check in with each other and see how we're feeling, see where our stress level is, see what our balance of outside life activities is. Make sure you're taking and planning your vacations and make sure your colleagues are, too, because that really helps you feel more engaged and ready to care for your patients when you come back. Um, rates of burnouts are especially high among pain expert healthcare professionals, but they also, we, we found in study after study that people reported their patients needed them, their patients cared about them, they felt appreciated. And that's something that really keeps us, keeps us in the field, it keeps us energized, it keeps us motivated. Um, there are a range of protective and corrective actions that can be taken, one at the level of the institution, so obviously I need to give this talk to a room full of uh, MBAs, right? I don't know why I'm preaching to the choir here. But two, at our level too, the healthcare professionals, a lot of things that we can do, we can take, take control of and take power in. And um, you have to remember to take care of yourself first so you can take care of others. And a lot of helping professionals feel guilty about caring for themselves. We are very focused on caring for our patients. And we'll spend a whole session reminding our patients to get good sleep and to eat while we're sitting there and we only slept a couple hours the night before and we haven't even had food and we're on a third cup of coffee. So we are aware of caring for other people, but we really need to be aware of caring for ourselves. So when you're on the flight, and I imagine most people, many people probably flew here, 
what does the flight attendant say to you when she's doing or he is doing the security briefing? That's right. Put on your oxygen mask first so you can help those before helping those around you. So that's really essential, and we want to not feel guilty for taking care of ourselves because it's going to keep us caring for our patients and our families and our other, require, other responsibilities. And it's really important that we stay healthy and balanced and happy so that we can keep caring for our patients. So thank you very much. And we do have a couple minutes for questions if anyone would like to ask in this format or if you're quiet and shy and you want to come afterwards, that's fine too. So anyone who wanted to ask a question as a group? All right, we'll go take a break and anyone who wants to come up and chat in person, please come on up.